Mark chapter 8 begins with the feeding of the 4,000. Now typically, uh, I would email reference verses to somebody in the community who would then put them on a humongous screen behind us. It just says title, Steve Wiggins. That's not the title to my message. And now, okay, we at least have the scripture coming up. If you didn't bring your Bible, bring it in the future, because this is a Bible study, by the way. And so, uh, but at least for today, we have, uh, we have scripture that'll be up here. We don't have time to turn back and forth to all of the different references. So if you wish, and you're a note taker, and I suggest that you do, um, you can take your little pencil and, uh, and you can write into the margins wherever we stop. <clears throat> These are some supporting verses That is, that the Bible supports itself. And so it's never just isolated ideas, but it's it's ideas, especially when we get into the Brit Hadashah. And Yeshua is speaking, and as Yeshua is speaking, sometimes he says things which make complete and, and perfect sense within the context of their conversation. But if you know the Bible, you realize that he's referencing other things throughout the Tanakh. Got it? And so what happens is whenever you see this references start to come up, even though it doesn't say, and he was referencing Isaiah or he was referencing whatever, at least we can highlight those things and realize that the same conditions appeared in the days of Yeshua as were appearing in the days of the prophets. And so therefore, when he's saying these things, he's alluding to the fact that when you listen to me talking, it's as if Jeremiah was talking in his day. Yes, things are as bad as they were in the day of Jeremiah. It's as if Isaiah was speaking in his day. Yes, things are as bad today as they were in the days of Isaiah. And we look at the church at large and we look at our nation in general. And we say to ourselves, you know, America is probably no better, spiritually speaking, than Israel in the days of Jeremiah. Than Israel in the days of Isaiah and the other prophets as they were speaking very strongly to the religious leaders of their day. And we see that even in the last week, we've had issues with Boy Scouts and homosexuality. We've had issues where our government seems to be using institutions in order to intimidate and to terrorize people who would otherwise be uh, uh, obliged to speak their free will. And so now you see that even a government is intimidating its citizens so that they don't speak out. And when we hear of other regimes who have done that in the past, we think of names like Hitler and Stalin. And we think of uh, repression. And so therefore, all of a sudden, we start to see that our nation is not so free as it has been perceived to be up until the last couple of months. And that's a little scary, isn't it? But it makes the Bible all the more relevant because we realize that we have not evolved as a society. But rather, we look at where we were when our nation was founded, spiritually speaking, and we look at where we are today and we say we have not progressed, but rather, while technology continues to grow and other things become more sophisticated in our culture, as a people, we are not any better And perhaps maybe as a culture worse than we are even 50 years ago. 
You can amen or not. I'm just saying that's my observation for the morning. So there's a bunch of verses, and when I say these verses, if you feel obliged, then you can write them into the margins of your Bible. Feeding of the 4,000. In those days, Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Yeshua called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way. For some of them have come from afar. And then his disciples answered him, how can you satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And you stop for a moment and you say, yeah, how could you do that, really? I mean, it seems unbelievable as Jewish people living in our modern day that somebody could satisfy a whole group of people with bread in the wilderness. I remember being in Israel on a tour several years ago with Harvest Christian Fellowship, Greg Laurie. We were, I was leading music on this tour with a group of other guys. And uh, I was also a bus captain because when Greg goes to Israel, there's like, I don't know how many buses it was, like seven or eight buses full of people, you know, a lot of people. So I was also a bus captain and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a toss of a coin when you get uh, tour guides in Israel as to whether or not they believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. While there's a, there are several who do, uh, most of them that you get on a tour of Israel are not believers. And so therefore, you have to really listen to what it is that they're teaching the group. You can't just let them run off with the, with the guide because oftentimes the guides whether it's malicious or, or whether it's just ignorance, oftentimes they can teach something which is absolutely contra to what was happening in that moment in Scripture, simply because they're not believers. And so therefore they try to rationalize and, and explain things, like I said, probably mostly in good nature, but just simply don't understand the, the word of the Lord. And I remember being at the Galilee And they were talking about how the water level in the Galilee was getting dangerously close to the point where if it if it decreases even more, that uh, if it decreases even more, that uh, that uh, uh, it could become another Dead Sea. And so there was a great danger at that time. As a matter of fact, that danger existed until this year when they had abnormal rainfall in Israel and the levels, water levels of the Galilee started to rise again, back to safer standards. So I said to the people once we had, we were at the Galilee boat store there where they sell you this and that. And uh, I said, we got back on the bus. I said, you know, we should pray for rain for the Galilee. Let's pray together for rain. And I'll never the tour guide, it will not work. And I'm like, you know, can you not just keep it to yourself? I said, what do you mean it won't work? It will, it will not rain. It's still past the rainy season. It won't work. And I said, well, you see, that's why they call it a miracle. Okay, well, it's not going to work. It's not going to rain. Right? And I looked at him, I said, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this idea? I mean, you're teaching the Bible. I mean, the Bible's all about miracles, parting of the sea and all of these other things. Of course it can rain. 
Elijah prays that it stopped raining, and it stopped raining. I'm sure it was not the season for rain. Is that your explanation? And then he prayed that it would rain. Oh, the season just automatically just happened to start on that day. So we prayed for rain. It will not rain. Next minute, my wife was with me. You remember this? And the next morning, what did we have? Clouds. Right? Because we believe in a God of miracles. A little drizzle. Was it enough to raise the Galilee? No, it'd take a couple more years, wouldn't it? But the point is, is that we serve a God who can step outside of the normal weather patterns. You understand? So here's these guys, and they believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. And they're in a deserted area, and they say to themselves, man, there's nothing to eat here. I mean, where in the world could we get bread to feed these people? What does this remind us of? It reminds us of Exodus. A time when there was a wilderness and there was a lot of people and there was no bread. And you ask yourself, when we're in these situations, do we always have to look for a human solution to human problems? Or can, in the middle of trying to work out a human solution, can we also say, Lord, we could use some work with the heavy lifting now? And so oftentimes, we don't want to go to the Lord. It's almost like, well, we're only going to bug him for big stuff. Hey, listen, we serve a God who is concerned about you as an individual as much as he's concerned about the community or the cosmos. Like he's, you know, it's like, well, it'd be too much for him to ask him to deal with this little problem. No, he cares about you that much. Exodus 16, two through four, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, if we'd only died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and we ate all the bread that we wanted back in those days, instead you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, I'm gonna rain down bread from heaven for you. These people are to go out each day and to gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Now you have the very same situation. A lot of people in the wilderness, no bread to eat. If you really understand who is the Messiah, that he is God made flesh, well, then you have no problem with coming to him and not complaining. Hey, no, 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 no. Let's send these people away so they can go buy food. But you come to him first and say, Lord, we know that you can do all things and that if you were willing then you could rain down bread upon this place. But if you're not willing, could you please let these people go so they can get something to eat? Do you understand the difference? You come to the Lord with your faith. And if he chooses to not answer your prayer in that way, you say, okay, nevertheless, I wanted to come to you first because I know that you're the one who can do these things. And they were still in the process of trying to figure out We understand that he's the Messiah, but I'm not exactly sure how this whole thing plays out. Then his disciples answered them and they said, how can one, uh, then his disciples answered him and said, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he said, how many loaves do you have? And I love this. And they said, seven So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And then he took the seven loaves and he gave thanks and he broke them. And he gave them to the disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. 
It's one of those trick questions that you ask. Who fed the 4,000? And oftentimes most everybody says, well, Yeshua fed the 4,000. But in the end, they came to him with a problem. We got 4,000 people that need to eat. I like what he didn't say. He didn't say, okay, well, stand back. Watch me, watch me roll up my sleeves and make this thing happen. He says, well, what do you have? And so oftentimes we have people who come to us and they legitimately find out that there's, there's issues where we need ministry. And there's issues where we need resources. And so they come to us and they said, hey, listen, there's a lot of ministry that needs to happen right here. You need a ministry to do this or you need a ministry to do that. And my first response is typically the response of most congregation leaders, which is this. Hey, you know what? The Lord has put it on your heart. You go do something about it. No, no, I'm just bringing it to your attention. I don't want to do any of the work. I just want to tell you that you need to put together a committee to do this work. And we come back and you say, no, the Lord's put it on your heart. He's allowed you to see it. What resources do you have? He comes back to them. What do you have? And they, what do they answer with? They answer with their scarcity. And yet we serve a God of abundance. They say, oh, we don't have enough to do this. And he says, you know what? Let's see what you can do with what you have if I bless what you have. You see, when we go to the God of abundance with our scarcity and say, Lord, bless my scarcity, you'd be amazed at how far our scarcity can stretch in order to do abundant things through the power of the Lord. Amen? This is exactly the situation. They see that there's a need. They go to him and they say, you have to come up with a sort of a human solution, not even thinking that you could do a divine thing. And he puts it back on them. What do you have? Well, we just don't, we don't have nothing. We just got to look for, we don't have enough for us. There's 12 of us plus you and we got a bunch of Klingons. You know what Klingons are, right? Whenever you're going out to eat dinner and there's a bunch of people and some of them are your friends and then some of them are just clinging on. We just have seven loaves and there's 13 of us. And by the way, a loaf is not like you think of a a loaf of Wonder Bread. If you've ever seen the loaves, they're not that big. Loaf's probably enough for one guy. And then he turns around and he blesses it. Do you see a problem in life? Do you see a problem in your life? Number one, are you willing to trust the Lord to do something miraculous? Miraculous enough to stretch your meager resources in order to meet your great needs? And are you willing to trust him that he would do that very thing? Because I think these are the kinds of tests that he puts into our situations. And so oftentimes we want to ascribe something that is a test from the Lord. We want to ascribe that as if it is opposition from the devil. But not every time that you feel uncomfortable is that the enemy. Oftentimes it is the Lord providing a situation for you to come to him and to trust in him so that he can prove faithful, so that it would build your faith when you put your faith in him. And you don't look necessarily for a human solution, but you look for the Lord to work through through your circumstances in order to provide for you. 
this is what we have faced here. Jeremiah 33, 12 says this. This is what the Lord of hosts says. In this desolate place, without man or beast, and in all its cities, there will once more be grazing land where the shepherds rest flocks. I love that idea. In this desolate place. Hey, you know what? We come to the son of David, the shepherd of Israel, whose job it is to gather the lost sheep of Israel. And we come before him and we say, Lord, we need a miracle in our day. And we need for you to provide for us in a miraculous way. And this is itself the answer to prophecy. Verse six, so he commands the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and he gave thanks and he broke them and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the multitude. And they also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he set them also before them. And so they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. And now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away, and immediately got into the boat with his disciples. And he came to the region of Dalmanutha, which is Magdala, modern-day Migdal. So we understand where he was. He was on the other side of the lake. In the past, we've talked about the different regions around the Galilee. And up in, if you look as if this Bema is the Galilee region, this is the Sea of Galilee. And strangely enough, right in the middle of the Sea of Galilee is a big star of David. No. And <laughs> up in here is sort of like, this is Capernaum, Capernaum, the village of Nahum. And then down here is Tiberias, and then over here is what they call the region of the Gerizines or the, or the Gadarenes. We see this in scripture. This was a religious Jewish community up in here. Matter of fact, they just, right outside of Migdal, they just found a brand new dig, a brand new synagogue, a, a religious, a Jewish religious synagogue, which they believe goes back to temple era which is amazing, and I actually got to go see it. I wasn't even supposed to go there, but I was with scholars, and uh, just happened to be a Klingon. And down here in Tiberias, this is a Roman city. There would be no religious Jews there. Across the lake, whenever you hear him say, I'm going to the other side, over here, this would also be a Gentile side. So up in the northern Galilee, this section right here would have been Jewish, religious Jewish. And if there were Jews over here, they were kind of like people who live in Alaska or Aruba. They were running from something. <laughs> and, and down here, they would have been uh, sort of Greek-based and, and Roman. So whenever he says, I'm going to the other side, you've got to figure out what side was he on to figure out the miracle that he does there. Because now it even makes more sense within the context of the Exodus. Because they've left Egypt, and now here they are in the wilderness, but they're yet to be in the promised land. And so now here he is on the wilderness. He's on the other side, but he's on the Gentile side. And so he's doing a miracle over there on the Gentile side for the people that are around him. Many Jewish people had followed him. But I would say that most of the religious who would want to kill him, perhaps they weren't following him over to that side at that point. 
And if they were, they were doing it pretty boldly. And they were taking a risk of being on the other side because we don't know if the meat's kosher over there. We don't know if anything's kosher over there. And perhaps that was the greater dilemma. Three days have gone by and these people have nothing to eat. And so therefore here he is providing for them on this other side. 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44, we see that this isn't the first time that this has happened. Whenever I've heard this preached in a church, I've never heard anybody reference 2 Kings 4. But now we understand that he's sending a, a greater message than just simply, I have the ability to provide manna, or I have the ability to provide bread in the wilderness. But you recognize that he is not the small P prophet, but he is the great P prophet that they're looking for. And he does something that we've only seen done one other time in the Bible, and that was done by Elisha, who was pretty important with respect to prophecy. 2 Kings 4, verses 42 through 44, a man from Baal Shalisha came to the man of God with a sack full of 20 loaves of barley from the first bread of the harvest. Man, I wish I could just preach on this, but I shan't. Elisha said, give it to the people to eat. But Elisha's attendant said, what? I'm going to set 20 loaves before 100 men? He says, give it to the people to eat, Elisha says. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and they will have some left over. So he gave it to them as the Lord had promised and they had some left over. Hello? You say, does Yeshua come in the power of Elisha? A lot more powerful than Elisha. He took less resources and he fed 400 times the number of people that Elisha had fed. Do you believe that that spoke myriads and volumes to the people who were standing around there? who were probably much more biblically literate than even us in this room this morning. So when they see bread being multiplied, they think Elisha. Although that might not have been the first assumption that we had. We thought Moses. So he's showing, I can do what Moses did better. I can do what Elisha did better. Do you think that he's greater? You better believe it. John chapter 21, verses 1 through 13, he says, After this, Yeshua revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now where was he? Well, the Sea of Tiberias would be like down in here. But Peter and the boys were from up in here. Why do you think they were in the Sea of Tiberias? Probably running for their lives. You know, we're fishermen and we know the Galilee, but how about we go to a different neighborhood <clears throat> That's my theory. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other of the disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Peter said. Well, we're coming with you, they told him. And then they went out and they got into the boat. But at night they caught nothing. It reminds us of Luke chapter 5, right? Remember when Yeshua called the disciples? It's the next morning, they're cleaning their stuff. He says, hey, can I use your boat? And they're like, yeah, okay, push him out. And he's like, hey, how about we go out there and do some more fishing? And they say, oh, no, no, we're, see, we're pros. And uh, we've been fishing when pros fish and we have caught nothing. And this is definitely not the time to catch fish, especially in the deep water. He's like, yeah, you know, kind of trust me on this one. They're like, okay, because you say so, we will. And then what happens? 
Mondo Hall of Fish. You see, the world says trusting in Yeshua is not going to lead to any level of success. But the Lord says, ah, trust me on this. And so here these guys go. It's almost the same conditions as it was on the day when you see that he called them to be disciples. They caught nothing. But when daybreak came, so when had they been fishing? All night long, just like Luke chapter 5. But when daybreak came, Yeshua stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know that it was Yeshua. Men, he calls out to them. You don't have any fish, do you? Don't you love that? No. All we need is a heckler now in Tiberius. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them. I wonder if he was talking about the Gentile side. It really depends on which way the boat was facing, didn't it? And you'll find some. And so they did. And then they were unable to haul it in because of the number of fish. Therefore, the disciple, the one who Yeshua loved, I like that because John's like, you know, he's talking about himself. He loved me. It's, it's kind of like the Schmothers brothers, you know. Mom always loved you best. Therefore, the disciple, the one who Yeshua loved, says to Peter, it's the Lord. And then Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He tied his outer garment around him for he was stripped and he plunged into the sea which is kind of funny. But since they weren't far from the land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came into the boat, came in the boat and they dragged the net full of fish. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there and fish are lying on it and what? And bread. I think it's interesting, just a side note. You say, well, they're only a hundred yards away from the shore. Why does he all of a sudden throw his garment on and jump into the water? If you ask me, I think that it's probably, uh, probably, I don't know, possibly because he was the only guy we ever saw that could walk on water. Otherwise, he would have just stayed in his work clothes and jumped out of the boat and swum. But he puts his whole garment on. And then he jumps out into the water. Well, he sinks like a stone, you know. It's like everybody else just takes the short journey in while Peter's swimming to the shore. Makes me wonder if he thought, you know what? I'm going to show him that I'm faithful. I'm going to jump out of this boat. Which perhaps is teaching a whole other lesson that whenever the Lord calls, that's when we should faithfully step out. But we should make sure that the Lord is calling because I've seen a lot of people faithfully step out of ministry and sink like a stone. Because they wanted to do something good for the Lord that he never called them to do. He actually had a whole other plan for them. It's not that he didn't love Peter, and I don't even know if that's exactly what happened, but at least we can teach from it. (laughs) He said, bring some of the fish that you've caught. And so Simon Peter got up and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. They say that at that time there was 153 known people groups. So perhaps it's speaking prophetically of the fact that someday they're going to be literally fishing for men of all nations, because we know that that indeed happened. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Yeshua told them, but none of his disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Yeshua came, took some bread, gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. 
And the parallel that we're trying to draw is, is that you start to see a convergence of past miracles coming back again as he's reminding them, not only have I been resurrected from the dead, but here's sort of a short list of miracles that you've watched me perform. And the feeding of the 4,000 is one of them. When he took a little bread and he took a little fish, what? That they caught. He already had fish prepared for them. But he took some that they caught and he made sure that they had enough or maybe even more than enough as he's speaking to them and he's encouraging them. And if you've ever stepped out of ministry and you feel like, man, that failed miserably, I'm never going to do that again. Don't do that. Just continue to seek the Lord and to say, Lord, I just, all I ever want to do is be pleasing to you. And I'm not looking for success to be the harbinger of your satisfaction with me. And I think he gauges it in faithfulness. So I'm going to continue to faithfully step out. And if your increase is tenfold or twentyfold or thousandfold, the increase is up to you. One of the great things that I hear Larry Feldman say, and I love it every time he says it, is this. Whenever I'm faced with a ministry problem, I don't say, Lord, I have a problem. What does he say? Lord, you have a problem. I have shared that advice over the last two years with so many people. I have clung to that advice for myself when I've had problems. Lord, you have a problem. You see, your servant's car has broken down. So I can't get to the ministry appointments that you've set up for me unless perhaps you don't want me to go. And I'm willing to accept that. But all I'm doing is bringing to you, your servant, bringing you a problem. And I'm going to need ministry resources in order to accomplish the tasks that I believe you've set me out to do. Unless, of course, maybe you haven't set me to do those things. There's a time when the Apostle Paul, Rabbi Saul, as we call him here in the Messianic world, he says, hey, I want to go to Asia, modern-day Turkey. I want to go to Asia, and I want to share the gospel. And the Holy Spirit said, no. And he continued to pound on that door, I want to go. And finally, he says, nevertheless, you know, the Spirit wouldn't let me do it. I wanted to do it. I had great plans. The Lord was going to do a great thing in my mind, They're in Asia, but the Spirit said, no, you can't do it. So therefore, when we have problems and we're serving the Lord, which you should be, by the way, we don't have problems. He has problems. So Lord, I'm bringing this problem to you, and if you want to solve it, so be it. If not, nevertheless, your will be done. I'm just a servant. And you're the one with all the sheep on a thousand hills. You're the one with all the resources, So therefore, I'm bringing it to you. I think that's what he's bringing to their recollection. And then, it says, after he fed the 4,000, that they got in the boat and they went back to the what? To the Jewish side of the lake. Back to Magdala. And when that happens, who shows back up again? The Pirishim, the Pharisees. And there they are, in number. Then the Pirishim come out and they begin to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Hey, if you would have followed me to the other side, 
You would have seen a sign. You'd have seen signs that Elisha did. You'd have seen signs that, that Moses did. Or rather, God did through Moses. God did through Elisha. And oftentimes we look to the Lord for a sign and we say, you know, seeing is believing. Baloney. Believing is seeing. And if you believe and you're willing to follow him, he'll show you stuff you've never seen in your life. I've seen stuff. I can't even relay it all here. They put time restrictions on me as it is. The great things which the Lord does in my life all the time. Some things are so huge, it's like, oh, get out of here. And other things are just like, hey, I've got health. My children are safe. I mean, all of these things, this is the Lord working in our lives, sometimes in huge active ways, but other times in huge passive ways that we don't even notice. And yet his protection is with us and among us. We shouldn't have to ask him for a sign. Enough signs have already been given. We should believe in him. And then he'll show you things that he only shows to people who believe. Listen, you should read the Bible every day. Why? Because he will reveal to you things that he only reveals to people who read the word. And if you've been reading the word with us every day, independent of anything that I may write and send out in an email to you, and you go, oh, now that's pretty cool. I never thought about that, which I hope happens every day. But independent of anything that I may write to you, it's amazing what the Spirit has shown you just as you've committed to read yourself. And if that's happened to you, raise your hand. Anybody been reading the Bible and got to see? God shows you things you've never seen before. Why? When you say believing is seeing. And by faith, I'm going to have an appointment with you every day, Lord, in your word. And every day he will honor that appointment. And show you the stuff that he only shows to people that are willing to follow him to the other side of the lake. And those who didn't have the faith to follow him to the other side of the lake, he comes back, he goes, hey, you want a sign? You should have gone to the other side of the lake. Ask these people. Because believe me, the Lord is not dead and miracles are not dead. It's happening all the time. But do you have eyes to see him? Do you have ears to hear him? And do you have hearts that are willing to receive it? Because that's what he's calling for as people are demanding from him a sign. Interestingly enough, we see him sighing at another time. Just in the previous chapter, Mark 7, as he's healing a deaf mute person, verse 34 of chapter 7, just right before this, he says, then looking up to heaven, he sighed and he says, Ephetha, that is to be open. He sighs deeply within himself as if, oh, this is, this is laboring me. And I don't know if you've ever been around a bunch of negative people, but listen, man, there ain't nothing more worse for a leader than to be around a bunch of negative people. Because negativism, is that a word? I'm making up words up here, man. I went to Shabbat service and I heard a bunch of new words that never existed. Negativity. I don't even know if that's a word, but you know what it means. Listen, that spreads like leaven and yeast spreading through dough. And it spreads a lot faster than positive thinking and faithful thinking because it's so much more natural for us to be negative and to be faithless. 
And yet enabled by the Spirit of God, we can live faithfully and we can live victoriously even amidst people that are always negatively trying to take jabs at us, especially at our faith and especially in the culture that we live in right now. Speaking of Mark 8, well, 12. Well, let's move on. Then these Pharisees came out and they began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven and testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? I don't think he was just talking about the people that were alive that day, like, you know, this generation. Whereas Ed could talk about his generation, which is very different from mine. And others of you that grew up in the hippie movement can talk about your generation, you know. And I talk about my generation to my kids and they don't relate. But when he says this generation, I think he's talking about this generation, the greater generation, the overarching generation of unbelief. And how long am I going to have to deal with a people who I created to be a nation chosen to serve me and to be a nation of priests to serve throughout the nations? It's that generation, that generation that I created by miracle. I took an old wrinkly man way past his prime and I took an old wrinkly woman way past childbearing age. We're looking at a lady in her 80s. My wife, when she was pregnant with Asher, she had the most shocking news when she went to her OB in Loma Linda. She came home and it disturbed her for days. And there were certain series of tests that my wife had to do that she never had to do with our other three. But now she comes to number four and she's like, I've never had to do these tests. And the lady says, well, you have to do these because you're of advanced maternal age. I had to hold my wife back from hitting her. (laughs) No, I didn't. But she came home and she's like, advanced (laughs) advanced maternal age? Do I look like advanced maternal age to you? And she goes, well, how old are you? She says, I'm 36. She goes, yeah, you're advanced maternal age. Can you imagine in your 80s? That's way advanced. But from a miracle. Because we think oftentimes the chosen people, and if we look at it within terms of modern history, just in the last hundred years, and you think of the chosen people, people think of, well, there's Jewish people, and there's Arab people, and there's Europeans, and there's Africans and Asians, and the Lord has just chosen these people over those people. And if we think of it that way, we feel like that kid at dodgeball that's like, I didn't get chosen. They chose the ghost man over me. If you, if you remember kickball, then you remember ghost man, but whatever. That's a person that doesn't even exist, but when you don't have enough people on the team, ghost man's on first base. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I was so bad, they chose ghost man over me. You know what I'm saying? It's like the nations look and they say, Why would God not choose us? I mean, Asians have good qualities. I mean, Europeans are smart people. We make Mercedes. See what I'm saying? Why would they choose the Jews? Hey, listen, people, we have to go beyond that and look at Scripture. Not just chosen as if all the nations lined up for the dodgeball or the kickball game and they got chosen over you. 
But he created a people by a miracle. Not just the chosen people, the created people. And you say, well, if we're created by the God of all creation, he's obviously created us for something. And he does. He says, I've created you to be a nation of priests, to bless the nations. But then there's this generation which says, yeah, you know, and I don't really kind of want that. And you realize pretty quick that it's possible to be chosen and to not choose the Lord. Created with a purpose, preordained with things that to do with your life. And to yet say, yeah, you know, I don't think I want that. This is the generation. Are you part of that generation? Are you part of the generation that says, oh Lord, I know you got planned for my life. And I know you got stuff that you want me to do. And sometimes I almost overwhelmingly feel like I should be saying something or doing something. And yet I'm going to resist it because I really kind of don't want that to tarnish my reputation. I got business plans. I got family plans. I got other things that I want to do. I don't want to live up to what it is that you've called me to do. That's the generation that he's talking about. Can you identify with that? I can. There's times in my life where I feel like the Lord wants me to say something and then for some reason I think, yeah, that would be kind of uncomfortable and I don't know that I really have enough time to go through the whole gospel and he's like... And I think he's kind of like, yeah, you're like those guys that come to me in the wilderness and go, where are we going to get bread here? Completely denying the fact that in a moment I could just use the few words that you have to say in order to transform a life for all eternity. And sometimes I think he even looks at me and he's like, how long am I going to have to deal with this generation? And if we can understand that, then we can understand the importance of being bold and the importance of believing as if we see and say, Lord, we don't need a sign. We've seen enough signs already. We're just going to faithfully move forward and we're going to let you provide whatever increase that you're going to provide. And if you choose to not, well, that's okay because the gospel never goes out void. It's never wasted when we throw it out there and we cast the net, as it were. Because we're fishing for men and we're, we're expecting for you to provide the increase. You're the one who fills nets. We're just the ones who are going to faithfully throw the net on the other side of the boat. In a time where fish shouldn't even be caught. When I started teaching here a few weeks ago, I started sharing I, at the end of the, the message. And I'm going to do it today. I just said, hey, listen, if you're here and you say, hey, you know what? I want to believe. I want to give you an opportunity to believe. And I had a few people that were like, hey, you know, Jewish people don't do that. I'm like, well, the Jewish people in this book do. So we're going to faithfully move forward and we're always going to throw the net. If he wants to fill it up to where this congregation, we don't, we got to build new seats. A week ago, we were asking this congregation if they would take out this first row of seats so that we would have more room to dance. What if we came to them and we said, hey, can we bust out this wall? And I've seen it before. Can we add another floor, like a third tier of people? 
And can we like maybe add some more seats? Because we're just, over, our boat is overflowing. That's the level of faith that we need to move in. And belief that we have to believe that he can provide that level of increase. Or else we're just going to be, how long am I going to have to deal with this generation? What generation was that? That generation of Shuva. Remember that period between, and then finally they got it, like right around 2018? We don't want to be that generation. We don't want to be a generation which grieves the Lord. We want to be a generation that stands before the Lord in the end and he says, well done. You're like, but almost nobody came. Oh man, you think that's, I provide the increase. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Not my good and productive servant. You get that? Because in our world, we, want, we got metrics and we want to measure this and we want to measure that and we want to see how effective we are by this and that. Hey, the Lord judges our effectiveness by our faithfulness. But we know that when we are faithful, he provides increase. And so therefore, that's the challenge, is it not, this morning? The Pharisees came out, verse 11, they began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him, but he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them. And getting into the boat, he departed for the what? Back to the Gentile side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than the loaf, the one loaf that they had with them in the boat. And then, they, and then he charged them saying, Take heed, being aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. We're going to get to this in a second, so I'm not going to expound on it at the moment. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, is it because we don't have any bread? They're still hooked on the bread. But Yeshua, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Listen, there's a difference between reasoning and perceiving and understanding. Reasoning looks for a human solution here in the natural world. Perceiving looks at your situation and remembers the same situation in the Bible. And if you can remember the same situation in the Bible, then you can see how that situation ended. Therefore, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of the Lord. You start to see these situations in the Bible happening in your life and you start to perceive, hey, wait a minute. The enemy's doing something here. And the Lord, that means the Lord is doing something here. Wait, you start to perceive. And when it's left up to human reason, we end up with just a bunch of human rules in order to explain away things that we should be perceiving. And if you can perceive it, then you can understand it. You ever been in that kind of situation? You ever been in an argument where you realize, hey, wait a minute. This argument really isn't about you and me. This argument is about something bigger. Maybe something in your past. Maybe there's baggage that's been carried. You start to perceive and then you start to understand what's happening. And this is the same situation with life as we start to perceive and understand. 
Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened, having eyes you don't see? And having ears that you don't hear? And do you not remember? When I first broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did I take up? And they said 12. I like the SAT questions here. Also, when I broke the first seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets did I take up? And they said seven. And he said to them, how is it that you don't understand? I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't know that I understand, Lord. Psalm 78, my people hear my instruction. Listen to what I say. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have passed down to us. I think we already start to see a problem. We must not hide them from their children, but to tell a future generation of the praises of the Lord, his might and his wonderful works that he has performed. When people don't see biblical connection, do you know why it is? It's because they're biblically illiterate. And do you know whose job it is to teach the Bible to your children? Yours. So if your children are not up to speed with the word, it's because you haven't taught them. It's not the job of the Shabbat school, although they're working very hard to teach your children the Bible. But ultimately, people don't get their values from Shabbat school. They get their values from mom and dad. So while they may learn a lesson in Shabbat school, they're going to weigh that against their value system, which they've learned from you. But if their value system, which they learned from you, is consistent with the word, then they have a higher probability of perceiving and understanding. This is not a New Testament idea. This is Psalm 78, verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and he set up a Torah in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that a future generation, children yet to be born. Hey, what about that generation? Yeshua says, how long am I going to have to suffer through this generation? What generation? The generation which is ignorant of the word. If these people knew the word and they knew all of these Bible stories, they would say, he's doing stuff Elijah did. He's doing stuff that Moses did. He's doing stuff that only the Messiah should do. But because they haven't, and what is, that's what I like, the responsibility doesn't solely lay on the life of the individual, but rather, ultimately, on, on the generation of the parents. But don't push your parents too hard The generation before them probably didn't teach them either, nor the generation before them. So now what we have is a culture of church, quote unquote, which has risen up, which is highly functional, biblically illiterate. And we learn how to work within the context of the community. We know when the songs start, we start dancing. We know when the liturgy starts, we stand up here. We sit down here. We learn things... But those are not the things which ultimately will support you through life. What supports you through life? This revealed by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And that's why if we have 90 days, let's spend it reading this. And my teaching is arbitrary. Verse 7, so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's work, but keep his commands. And then they will not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious, what? 
generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. John seven fourteen through 17, and when the festival was already half over, Yeshua went up to the temple complex and began to teach. And then the Jews were amazed and they said, how does he know the scriptures since he hasn't been trained? You want to see something that peeves Steve Wiggins? That we have to send our kids to seminary. Seminary should send their students to us because we are biblically literate, or we will be, if we continue to maintain our present trend. Yeshua answered then, saying, my teaching isn't but mine, but it's from the one who sent me. Who taught Yeshua? Well, it's kind of a trick question. But in the context in which he answers them, well, I got what I got from my father. Where'd you get what you got? If anyone wants to do his will, he will understand whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own. You want to do God's will, then you'll know. But if you're bent on not doing God's will, you're always going to find some human solution as to why you shouldn't believe in Yeshua. Verse 22, and then he came to Bethsaida and they brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of town. I got to tell you, I've been in a few congregations and somebody says, hey, you know what? I really want to know the Lord. I'm like, okay, well, first thing you got to do is leave this church because they ain't teaching it. It's really hard to think that and feel that in your heart. I'm just saying, I've been there. I say, look at the fruit of this congregation. The best thing for you to do on your spiritual journey is to take the journey out the back door and go to a place that teaches the word right and divides it rightly. I'm not being judgmental with respect that I'm not pointing out any particular congregation. I'm just saying, I felt that way before. He took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of town. And when he spit on his eyes, which seems bizarre, and he put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking, which is bizarre. And sometimes I wonder if Yeshua overcorrected his eyes or whether he undercorrected his eyes. If he undercorrected him, it's like, oh man, Yeshua, he's really good with the preaching, but he's not really good with the optometry. But I almost wonder if he allowed him in the midst of this to see prophetically men like trees walking. And I just say that because Jude, verse 12, says, these are the ones who are like dangerous reefs at your love feasts. And they feast with you, nurturing themselves without fear. They are like waterless clouds carried away by the wind. They're like trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. I just wonder, because so often it's taught, well, you know, maybe this guy didn't have enough faith and so Yeshua really couldn't heal him. What? Nothing? What? Nothing's impossible for Yeshua. I almost wonder if he says, hey, what do you see? And he's like, I see guys, they're like trees walking. He's like, okay, wait a minute, let's, let's dial that prescription back a little bit. Who knows? I see men like trees walking. He put his hands on his eyes again. He made him look up and he was restored. He saw everyone clearly. And then he sent him away from his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anybody in the town. 
We've already been through why he would do that. Partly because he wanted the people to go to the priests and offer the, 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 the offering that Moses had prescribed in order to communicate to the people, hey, listen, I'm not starting a new religion over here. What I'm doing is not contra to the Torah, which, by the way, is the accusation among the Jewish community primarily today about who we are. That we're starting some new religion and we're doing some new thing. And true, it is the Brit Hadashah, it is the new covenant, but it's the new covenant which was prophesied would come through Jeremiah. And therefore, what we do is not inconsistent with the word of the Lord, but rather is consistent and more accurate than you would get even if you took a 50-yard walk, I don't know, to somewhere else that seems more legit and yet doesn't weigh the word of the Lord accurately that they would ever lead you to Yeshua. At the Chabad Center, they're not ever going to say at the middle of it, hey, well, maybe by the, by the power of the Lord they would. They're never going to say, hey, you know, we're reading Isaiah 53 last week and all the rabbis and I are talking and we're like, you know what? We think that's Yeshua. That's never going to happen. He says, don't go into town or tell anybody in the town. Verse 27, now Yeshua and his disciples went to the town of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Which is more important. And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Messiah And then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. What's interesting about that whole situation is that when Peter confesses that he is the Messiah in another part in the Gospels, he says, and right you are, because man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And the point is, is that what the Lord was wanting to happen was that the Spirit of God would testify as to who he was because he didn't need the testimony of men. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days would rise again. And he spoke this word openly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around, he looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. Not that Peter himself was Satan, but that this philosophy which had woven into Peter's belief was itself from the devil. Peter wasn't of the devil. The ideas and the words, and it makes sense because when we go back to chapter 5, uh, verse 15 of this chapter, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And so you realize that the, the ideas of who is Messiah and who is he supposed to be and why, how is it that Yeshua could never be the Messiah? You know, you can go to websites today online, 
Rabbis say there's impossible that Yeshua could be the Messiah. And they give all these reasons why they think that he couldn't be. And you know what? If you spend too much time on there, you might start believing it yourself. There's been many who've left the fold because they had the leaven of the Pharisees, as it were, and the Herods. The Pharisees, which is, hey, these are religious reasons why he is not the Messiah. And the Herods, they, 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 they sort of represent the worldly reasons why you shouldn't believe in Yeshua. And he's already told them to beware of it. And now you start to see that Peter still believes that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be that great military leader who's going to rise up and defeat the Romans. And he goes, listen, I know that sounds like wishful thinking to you, but to me that sounds like Satan. Because it's contra to my plan, which, by the way, has been outlined in Scripture all the way through Scripture. Who will the Messiah be? What will he do? And ultimately, what is his mission? And I'm telling you what my mission is, and yet you're telling me that that's a lie, that you have a better plan for my life. And believe me, the Lord is telling you what is his plan for your life. How often do we look at the Lord and say, no, 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 I had a better plan and you're messing it up. Because then you may hear him say to you, get behind me, Satan. Verse 34, and when he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever decides to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, listen, I have to be hung on a Roman cross. It's going to happen. And if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to pick up your own. Because a death sentence in this world is not a death sentence for the believer. So they may kill you. Did you know that there's more martyrs who have died in the 20th century than who have died in the history of the world up until the 20th century? Martyrdom for people who believe in Yeshua is an everyday thing in places like Egypt, Iran, and maybe even places here in the United States. We just don't get them so highly publicized. But believe me, people are oftentimes asked to pay the ultimate price for their faith. But I like what Jim Elliott said, who himself was a martyr. So obviously he said this before he was martyred. He is no fool who would give up what he cannot save in order to obtain what he cannot lose. You're no fool to give up what you cannot save, your life. You can't save your life. In order to obtain what you cannot lose, the grace of Yeshua, the Messiah. Have you come to that point in your life where you said, you know what, I'm willing to trust in Yeshua. And I'm willing to live my life in such a way that it would be utter foolishness unless there was a resurrection for the dead. But because I believe that there is, I have the freedom to live as boldly as the Lord calls me. Trusting on him for the increase and not my efforts. Although I'm going to work like it depends on me. And I'm going to know that it all depends on him. Does that make sense? You miss that, you've missed the essence of what it means to be a believer. It's not just about signing a card or raising a hand or walking down an aisle. It's about being willing to live a life devoted to him 
and to believe his word and to trust in his ruach, his spirit, to guide you to the places where he calls you. In the midst of great opposition that you would have peace because your peace is not in your conditions but your peace is defined by your object of your faith, the Lord. And knowing that he has a plan and that he's in control and that his character never changes. And he loves us. He says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? I don't know if this preaches well in Orange County or not. But I think that there's a few people that may be in our culture that may be seeking to gain the whole world. And who cares if you do? I gotta tell you, I love a Lamborghini. It's just beautiful, isn't it? The other day we're driving by Fashion Island and I don't know what was happening, but like four Lamborghinis all drove by me. Everyone, woo, woo. My wife's like, look at the road, Stephen. I'm like, did you see that? Who cares if you gain a fleet of them? And you lose your soul. Everything in this world is going to burn. Even the Lamborghinis. It's all going to burn. So don't let that be your main pursuit in life. Is it wrong to be successful? No. By God's grace, we can be successful. Is it noble to be in poverty? I don't think it's noble to be poor. What's noble is to faithfully seek the Lord and let him guide you. Some will be guided into great abundance. Some will be guided into great poverty and even martyrdom. But it doesn't make God any greater for the rich man or any worse for the poor man. He's the God of all creation and this life that we leave is just a vapor. And the question is, what are you going to do with the life that he's given you? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I got five Lamborghinis, Lord. Is that enough? No. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the generation which makes the Lord sigh, Of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Let's all bow our heads. You say, Steve, I don't want to be ashamed of Yeshua. And I definitely don't want Yeshua to be ashamed of me in the last days. Or in any day for that matter. So what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the good thing is there's nothing you could do. You say, that's not good news. There's nothing I could do. What's great news? It doesn't depend on your righteousness. To paraphrase an old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Yeshua's blood and righteousness. It is he who has paid the penalty for our sin debt And he paid it in full, which means that every sin you have committed or every sin that you could ever commit has been paid for by Messiah. 
And the real question is, have you turned from your sin and have you received it? And as I said, I'm never going to stop casting the net because I don't look for numbers to be my result as to whether or not I should be doing something. I just look to the Lord. Lord, what are you doing? And I think the Lord's saying, Steve, throw the net out. There's a few fish in this room, as it were, who need to trust in me. And if you're here this morning, and, you, and uh, most of you are, and you say, I've never really come to a point in my life where I've trusted in the Yeshua. Never set a date where I said, okay, Lord, now I believe. Well, maybe this is the day. It's my birthday today. This could be your spiritual birthday, the day when you were literally born again. And so I ask you, if you're here and you say, I want to trust in Yeshua, would you raise your hand? Because I'd like to pray for you. So wherever you are right now, just raise your hand and I'll lead you in a prayer where you can ask the Lord to take control of your life. Anybody in this room? Just raise your hand. Amen. Let's all stand together. If you're not on that email list, you should be on it. Come see me. Give me your name. I'll put it on a piece of paper. Tomorrow morning, I'll put it onto our website. And uh, if you have friends that don't know Yeshua in a saving way, they need to know him. And at least you know you can bring them here and they're going to be given that opportunity to cross that line of faith, that faith that says, I believe. Now help me with my unbelief.